You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. My name is Elia Robinson. We are excited to have Pastor Jeremy back with us this morning after his vacation in July. Today we are starting a new sermon series through the book of 1 Timothy. Our reading this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. You can find that on page 932 in the Chairback Bibles. Please go there with me. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, please feel free to take that as a copy to you. Again, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Dear God, we thank you for your Bible, and we thank you for this church. We pray for Jeremy as he teaches this morning, and ask that you'd give him clear words to share, and give us soft hearts to hear and apply your truths in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Elia. It is a treat to be back with you today after some time away. So grateful to the elders for that break, the church. Also, so grateful for our music team as our uh, music director, Mr. Ricky, is on his sabbatical. They've, what a great job you guys did. We are starting a new sermon series, and we have these new scripture journals that we would love to give you if you want one. In fact, we have uh, two guys who are happy to hand them out. If you want one of these right now, uh, they'll walk around Vanna White style and hand those things out real quick. And uh, your, our gift to you, those of you who want to just use some of our notes that we print off, that's totally fine as well. Um, I love these because it allows you to kind of read along, keep track, have a place for it. So, Well, about five years ago... We renovated this building. Five years ago, we renovated this building. Here's a picture of what our building used to look like on the outside. For those of you who never were here, that's what it was like. The entrance was on the side, and there was no kids' wing, and we had this gigantic foyer that, uh, as you walked through, the bathroom was just slammed right in the middle of everything. So um, if ever you wanted to just welcome and greet people, you could also notice folks in the bathroom and... uh, the smells and all that. Nevertheless, we are so glad to be on this side of the renovation. Because if you've ever been through a renovation, if you've ever been through a build, whether that's residential, even commercial, man, those things are tough. Uh, our price tag was $3 million. Thank you, Lord. We've got that thing paid off. We're grateful for that. But the amount of time and and energy, not just the money, but the amount of time and energy it took to do a building campaign was bananas because um, you have to talk to architects and, and you tell them this is what we're thinking and this is our price tag and then um, a long time later they come back and the price tag just doubled and you don't even know why, I mean everybody's in that first meeting and, and then you've got to go through engineering and the, okay that won't work this way and then 
other people will come up and say, well, actually, what if we did this? And, and after all of those conversations and dreaming and redesigning, and, and then you got to get codes, and then you're building it, and there's the mess, and the city saying, um, whatever the city said, blah, blah, blah. It just is so much work when you try to do a new build or you try to do construction. And it was so encouraging. Uh, we were so grateful to get on the other side of that build. And what we came to learn is it is just a lot easier if you would keep things simple. It'd be a lot easier if you kept things simple. You'd save a lot of time and energy. And in fact, I found myself thinking, I, there's something about cookie cutter architecture, which I know some people think, man, that's, that's really boring. Uh, cookie cutter subdivisions are awful and I, and I don't like them, but I get the appeal because once you've got a plan that works, all of a sudden you can save all, time, all kinds of time and energy because you already know how these things operate. You know the finished product and you can just plop them down and move on through. In fact, if uh, it was up to me, I suppose every church could just have the same architectural cookie-cutter approach, and I suppose that might bore some people, but in my view, it would just save so much time and energy. So when it comes to like a literal blueprint of a church and how it has to be built, there really is so much flexibility in what a church can do. But when it comes to a spiritual blueprint, I'm afraid that there may be some people who think about a church spiritually in the same way they do about a church physically. Here's what I mean. I think there are people who, who think to themselves, man, it's so fun being creative with how we actually design a home or design a literal church building. We ought to bring some of that creativity to bear on the way we actually do church on a Sunday morning and the way we do worship services or with the ways that we are going to offer ministries. And while I grant that literally it's okay to put walls wherever you want for a church building, I think God actually has created a blueprint for the spiritual way we're supposed to do church. I think God has given us a blueprint for the spiritual way we're supposed to do church. See, there are literally hundreds of books out there, probably thousands of hours of podcasts where people will say that in 2023, the church is dead. It's 2023, the church has failed, none of it is going right, and, and the way to resurrect the church from its ashes is by dreaming up a new way to do church. There are a lot of people making a lot of money selling that message. Telling a church like ours, here's the way to actually do church moving forward. And of course, the great problem is God's already architected his own plan for the church. The problem is God's already engineered how he wants the entire church to function spiritually. And our problem isn't that God's blueprints have failed. Our real problem today in the church is that we've got pastors and elders and leaders and members who are not following God's blueprint. That's the problem. I suppose some people make that mistake accidentally. Perhaps others just think, 
they don't like God's blueprint. But regardless, at the end of the day, what's failing in modern churches isn't God's blueprint. It's us following the blueprint. This morning then, we're starting this new sermon series. And what 1 Timothy is going to provide for us is God's blueprint for a strong church. That's what this book is going to give us. This then, not the literal blueprint for how a church must be built, the spiritual blueprint for how God wants us to do church. And so if you want to know how to be a strong church, what is God's blueprint for his church? That's 1 Timothy. And I'm going to introduce this book then. Three questions. Three questions we're going to answer. Whose blueprint is it? Who's the blueprint for? And what is the blueprint? If you're taking notes, you want to follow along in your little scripture journal, those then are the three questions. Whose blueprint is it? Who's the blueprint for? And what is the blueprint? If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you open to 1 Timothy chapter 1? We're going to introduce this book by way of the first two verses. Let's start with verses 1 and 2. Excuse me, let's start with verse 1. Let me answer this question. Whose blueprint? Look there, verse 1. And you're going to find a customary greeting for a letter that's 2,000 years old. In case you forgot this morning over breakfast to Google search, how does a letter that's 2,000 years old actually start? Here is a stereotypical one for your information. Paul telling us that he is writing this. Most experts agree it's happened in the mid-60 A.D., so roughly 30 years after Christ's death and resurrection. And in verse 1, we see him calling himself an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, that word apostle, that word gets thrown around nowadays. Like sometimes in my mailbox, I'll get this little mailer that says, you know, Apostle so-and-so is coming to Kansas City, and you should come to this thing where this Apostle so-and-so is, is going to give a message. Or, or there are other churches who actually will give titles to men in their church or women in their church that they are an apostle. But I think using the word apostle that way actually confuses for us what the original audience would have understood. See, when Paul says, I'm an apostle, what the original audience would have understood is, he is one that Jesus himself has handpicked. That, that they would know, Paul's been handpicked by Jesus, so whatever Paul is saying, he has a direct tie to the Messiah himself, and whatever Paul says then has authority, because he's an apostle of Jesus. What I'm trying to make sure you know is whatever churches or conferences throw the word apostle around, they are very different than who Paul was. Very different. Paul was an official representative sent to preach and teach God's message. In fact, here's how one commentator puts it, says it a lot better than me. Here's the quote. Early Christians held the belief that the apostles were Christ's authorized agents to deliver and transmit the new message of redemption. Although the apostles did this orally, they also began to write their message down. Hello, 1 Timothy, right? Thus, documents that were regarded as containing apostolic teaching would have been viewed as authoritative right from the beginning. 
and would not have needed to wait for later ecclesiastical developments, which is a real fancy way of saying, when is somebody going to actually officially tell us that 1 Timothy is in the New Testament canon? That happened. I can nerd out with church history with you after service if you want. What I'm trying to tell you is when Timothy got this, he was a pastor in Ephesus. And when the church at Ephesus got this letter, they knew Paul's an apostle of Christ Jesus. So what he wrote is as if Christ said it himself. So we're going to listen to this letter. See, just in case anybody's wondering Paul's credentials, notice that he's apostle of Christ Jesus. And what's the text say there? By whose command? Uh, by command of God. I'm imagining if somebody was sitting down interviewing Paul and they were saying, hey, I'd like to just look at the reference section of your resume. I was just <clears throat> curious, like, uh, could we follow up with a few people to know how, like, legitimate you are? Uh, yeah, sure. You might notice there on line number two um, on my reference list is God. <laughs> Feel free to follow up with him if you have a question about my references. It is, of course, God who commanded Paul to be an apostle. And it's God who is the Savior. That's an Old Testament idea that God saves his people. And then it's Christ Jesus, our Lord, or Christ Jesus, our hope, there in verse 1, pointing us to the future. One verse in, and what I'm trying to get you to see is we already have incredible authority and street credit established. It's taken Paul one verse, and all those listening to this letter would have realized this guy knows what he's talking about. He has legitimate authority. He has the street credit to tell us. So here's the answer to our first question. If you're taking notes, you might write this down. Who is the author of the blueprint? Answer, Paul. There's just no doubt he wrote this letter. And yet, because Paul's an apostle, why then there's another author behind him, isn't there? Because Paul is an authorized representative of Jesus Christ. Because God himself commanded Paul to write this letter. Get this. This letter is different than any letter you and I have written ever in our lives. Because God is also the author of this blueprint. I hope you'll write both of those names down. Paul wrote this letter and so did God. And the dual authorship of this letter should not be confused. They shouldn't be separated either, for the original audience would not have separated that both are behind the Bible. And in fact, for 2,000 years, Christians have defended God wrote his Bible through authors who are human and their personality. But that is why this book is different than any other book out there. And frankly, this is one of the things that separates us from every other world religion. Nobody else says that man and God together wrote scripture. We do. Having then established the cosmic authorship behind this letter, because this is a special book. You've never read a letter like it. Might there also be a massive readership intended? Move with me to our second question. Who's this blueprint for? Verse 2, look at the text. To Timothy. Hey, pastor, you don't even have to spend five minutes on this second section. We already know the answer, and you'd be right. The answer is Timothy. But that's not all. And not so fast. I won't take five minutes, but give me a couple to explain to you that in my study of this letter, and you could study it too if you wanted, there's actually 
Paul using second person plural to Timothy. Oh, good grief, I forgot about English grammar in school, and it's still summer break, Pastor, don't give me that. Okay, here's what it is. Uh, I've got some neighbors from Arkansas. They, you know, they love being down there from the south, and if you're from the south, you've probably heard that phrase, y'all. <laughs> y'all. Hey, y'all. What is that word? <laughs> what is that word? Well, that's second person plural. Okay, so, so why in the world, if Paul's actually writing to Timothy, why is he saying y'all at different times in the letter? That question makes a pastor bang his head on a wall for about a half a day because he can't figure it out. Can you figure it out? Like if I wrote you a letter and it said, hey y'all, hey y'all, hey y'all, I mean either the author made a mistake I was asking my dad that question. Why do you think he did that? He goes, well, because he made a mistake. That's it. Well, if, if Paul made a mistake in this letter, then we got bigger problems than 1 Timothy because uh, forget it. Forget God's authorship. Paul didn't make a mistake. Here's the answer. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, who is a pastor in the church of Ephesus, intending for this letter to be read to Timothy with the church listening. And so you've already got two answers to this question. Who is the blueprint for? Answer, it is to Timothy, and yet it is to be read at the church where he pastors with the congregation listening. I, I, I genuinely believe that when they got this letter, he read it, he realized, oh, I don't have to preach a sermon this week. The sermon's going to be this letter. And so somebody stood up in front of the church, and they said, hey, welcome to First Church of the Ephesians. And today for our sermon, we're going to hear Paul, who... Uh, Apostle by command of God, so we're going to, head, go ahead, going to change our preaching schedule for Paul, and then they read this letter because Paul's going to speak to Timothy and everyone. And that makes a big difference, doesn't it? Because think about this. If Timothy was reading this letter in private, and Paul's patting him on the back and encouraging him and saying, hey, be careful, because there's some false teachers in the church who are teaching some myths and some genealogical family tree garbage. That'd be one thing for Timothy to go, all right, the guy who planted this church, my spiritual dad, he's encouraging me to press on, and, th and that'd feel good and be fine, but it would be different if you got that privately versus... That letter being read out loud with everybody listening. You see how different that is? Different that is? Because all of a sudden, when he gets to that part, you can see there in verses 3 to 5 or 3 to 7, that part about, hey, there's some teachers who are doing a Sunday school class about myths and family trees and genealogical garbage, and they need to be confronted and told to stop. My guess is a lot of people are sort of looking over at the Sunday school leaders of that class going, okay, <laughs> Mr. I'm an apostle of God just told you to shut that class down because it's wrong. And there's a lot more weight happening to a letter that gets written to everybody. So, again, if you're tracking, who is this blueprint for? It is for Timothy, and yet it is also for the church of Ephesus. But get this, there's actually a third group as well. And it includes us today. Here's why this blueprint is also for us today, Mill Creek. See, if you believe that Paul really is an apostle of God, that God commanded Paul to be an apostle, therefore his message is authoritative, and if you believe that Paul wrote this to be a public letter to Timothy on how the church is to be built spiritually, this really is the blueprint for how a church is supposed to operate. And if you really believe then 
that those truths, an apostle speaking on behalf of God to a church, why then these commands on how to do church that have sovereignly been preserved 2,000 years, so you sit here right now with a copy of the very letter from God's apostle to Timothy, why then you see we have God's blueprints for us today. And look, this is a reason why, in my view, we don't need apostles today. We don't need the elders appointing me as an apostle. We don't need somebody coming in saying, hey, I'm a, I decided for myself I'm an apostle. We don't need any of that because we already have an authoritative and sufficient message in Scripture for the blueprints of how to do church. Now, I hope I haven't moved too fast through this progression because these connections have incredible ramifications for us today. Because if, if you come in here and, and you're tracking with me and you go, look, I grant that Paul wrote this to Timothy. And that's fine. I'll even grant that it was to the church of Ephesus. But you don't actually think it matters for us today. Why, then you're only going to read this thing historically and not think about it operationally. You might be looking at this book curiously, but you're not going to be excited about applying it practically. And I'm just trying to show you our cards from the beginning. We read this letter and we think this really is the blueprint. This is how we're supposed to do church. And, and, and look, friends, I still can remember my aha moment when I realized, when I realized we don't need we don't need to have a big whiteboard brainstorming session on a new way to do church. I, I, I can still remember feeling like, man, there's some big problems in the church. And I was, I was reading a lot more newspaper than I was God's word, real worried about where the state of the church was, real worried about what the world thought of the church, and real concerned about what the world thought we should do to actually make the church relevant. I just, I was buying into all of that. And I remember this aha moment when I thought, oh man, God doesn't need new architects. God doesn't need new architects. He doesn't need new engineers who are looking at the spiritual blueprints and going, you know, we should probably move that load-bearing wall because that doesn't make sense to us today. And boy, we could really get some results if we bumped out that little wing and, 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 and blah, blah, blah. I still remember realizing to myself, God doesn't need new architects. He doesn't need new engineers. He needs just some faithful blue-collar builders. He doesn't need a bunch of builders going, I have a few change orders I'd like to throw up. Hey, Mr. God, can we have a little appointment? Because i got a couple change orders. I, you clearly haven't thought this through. No, man, he just needs builders. Just people who say, I'm going to get up. I'm going to do, do what the plan says. I'm not going to criticize your plan. I'm just going to believe you actually know what you're doing. You're trained in how to architect a church. You've got all the credentials on how to engineer a church. I'm just going to build. And don't we see that in the scriptures? Hey, Noah, here's a boat. Build it. Actually, I thought it'd be, there'd be a viewing deck on the top. I could see that storm a little better and we get a better picture. No, no, it just builds it. Hey, Moses, this is how to put a tabernacle together. Build it. Hey, Solomon, here's what I'd like for my temple. Build it. Hey, Ezra and Nehemiah, here's how that city's to be re reconstructed. Go build it. Same thing in the New Testament. Hey, Timothy, here's what a church is supposed to look like. Now go build it. 
God's not looking for new people to design new plans. He just wants blue-collar builders. Which the question then for us is, are we going to build God's church God's way? And that's where this puts us. Are we going to build God's church God's way? Oh, but pastor, pastor, wait, a, whoa, whoa, whoa. Just a minute, some might say. If you would just make this one little change, why the, why the church would be so much better. I grant that there's things that 1 Timothy is going to say that we may, as such sophisticated people in the 2023s, look at and go, that's so easy. There will be some changes that we think might make things better. But look, God put load-bearing walls, so to speak, in the church for a reason. And you can kick out a load-bearing wall, and that first week everything may seem fine, but eventually you're going to have significant problems. And you may not be able to see them all, but you don't just kick out pillars and buttresses in God's church because you feel like it. And pillars and buttresses is the language that Paul uses. Uh, pillar, you know what a pillar is? A buttress is, is what supports a wall, makes it like 10 times stronger. You don't just kick those things out without a consequence. So I know you might think that there's ways to improve the plan, but God did it for a reason. Oh, but pastor, look, man, some might say, it's just so old. This plan is just so old. Don't you know newer is better? Yeah, I know. Some people think newer is better. But just because it's old doesn't make it not relevant for what we actually need. And look, there may be some who go, oh, but pastor, it doesn't make sense to me. I can't figure out why God did it that way. And I grant, I like to understand why. But there may be some things God tells us to do, and he doesn't tell us why. Are we going to do them or not? Because look, our whole spiritual life is to be lived by faith. It makes sense that we would have to do church by faith in some ways as well. Ah, but pastor, some might finally criticize, you won't get the results you want if you do it this way. You won't get the results you want. You want to see a lot of people converted, pastor? you got to change the way you do church. Uh, look, I'll be totally real with you. I am, I am a sucker for thinking about revival. And we've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 164 houses in my little neighborhood, and I pray for those people. And I would, I would, I would do a lot to see all those people wear out that baptismal. I can think of nothing better than people to say, well, your baptismal's broke. You're going to have to buy a new one because you just wore that sucker out. Oh, which, by the way, we are having problems with that baptismal because we've had so many people getting baptized. We really are having a trouble, so we may have to buy two, just one for reserve in case, you know. Praise the Lord. I'm a sucker for revival, and I'm praying for it. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, man, I'd love for you to know Christ, and I'd like to get you baptized really quick. But, but look, if we change our methods and we contradict what 1 Timothy says because we want some results, we're going to wake up in 10 years and realize that wasn't actually what we were trying to get done. And it may look good today, but eventually we're going to see it's not, it's not what we were hoping for. The only way to get the results we really want is to do church God's way. That's how you get the results. So are we going to build God's church God's way? Before we commit to following it, it's probably good that you know something about what the blueprint is. And that brings us to our third point. This is the shortest one. You're going to have to write fast if you want to see everything that's in this blueprint. Because by my count... Here in this third question, what is the blueprint? There are seven crucial pillars to God's church. 
I suppose in modern vernacular, we might say seven load-bearing walls or seven trusses that 1 Timothy is going to show us, and, and we find all of that together from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. In fact, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, this is the very center of Paul's purpose for this letter, in case you thought to yourself, where are you getting this blueprint idea? Where are you getting this idea that Paul's intention is for Timothy to build a church in a certain way? It's 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14, 15. This is the purpose. I put it on the slide. Let me just read it out loud. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's church. Household of God is the church. So you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's Paul's statement of purpose in this letter. Hey, Timothy, I wish I was there in person, and it may, I may get my flight delayed a few days, so while I'm waiting to get there to Ephesus, you got to know that the church is supposed to have these foundational pillars, and this is the buttress that's going to keep those things strong. you got to know these things, and by my count, there are Here they are. you got to know the correct doctrine in a church. That's chapter one. That is a crucial pillar in God's church. Number two, you got to know the essentials for worship services in a church. Oh my gosh, he's talking so fast. I'm never going to get these all written down. Just email me later. I'll give you my notes and we're done. You can have them. Just keep coming to worship services for the next three months. You can get them all with explanation. Number three, you need to know the expectations for men and women in the church. Well, that's going to be a spicy week, isn't it? Fourth pillar, fourth load-bearing wall, fourth trust. You need to know the leadership of a church. That's chapter 3. There's elders and there's deacons. You need to know that. Five, you need to know what the foundation of the church is. You know, Timothy, Ephesus, do you even know that this whole thing's based on Jesus Christ and his gospel? He's going to make that really clear, chapter 4. Chapter 5 to the beginning of 6, you need to know the expectations and obligations for church members. Wait a minute, uh, they've been talking to me here at Mill Creek about becoming a member, but I am not quite sure there was all these expectations and obligations. Well, surprise, if you didn't know, if you're a member here, there are expectations and obligations, and we're going to walk through those in number five. Finally, the foundation and pillar from Paul himself. I wouldn't have picked it, but it's there. The warning to the rich in a church. Turns out that's going to capture, last I checked, 100% of the people in this room. Here now then, you see seven crucial pillars, seven foundations of a healthy church. And I hope you can appreciate then why we believe so deeply that we've got to follow God's blueprint. Because look, man, Paul's not writing this letter as a consultant, offering Timothy a few recommendations. You know, Timothy, I was a guest at your church the other day, and I just had a few suggestions you might consider. That's not what this letter is. No, Paul's saying, look, by my God-given apostleship, I am writing a letter to you, and I am urging you. I am charging you. Timothy, this is what you must do if you're going to be a faithful pastor to that church in Ephesus. 
And that's what we must do if we're going to be a faithful church 2,000 years later. We've now answered our third question. I've got two takeaways for you. This is the application section. If you're taking notes, I'd love for you to write these two things down. Here's what I want you to leave with. First application, I want you to understand the blueprint. I know that there's a lot of meat we need to put on these bones, but I want you to know the bones. I want you to see the seven significant parts of this blueprint. Most importantly, I want you to be sure that you leave knowing who wrote the blueprint. I trust you. If you've been tracking, you know, yeah, Paul wrote it and God wrote it. I want you to understand that. That's important. I also want you to understand who it's for. It was written to Timothy, also the church of Ephesus to be listened to, but it's also for us today. I want you to understand that. Understand from Paul and God to Timothy, Ephesus, and us. And every single pillar and buttress that God's included here, I want you to understand that's for our good. Because this is the way it always works for God. It's for His glory and our good. And those things don't have to be mutually exclusive. And I hope you get it and you understand it. First, Timothy is not irrelevant. And it's not unclear. It's certainly not outdated. First Timothy is authoritative, and it's sufficient. It's enough. In fact, get this. If, if we had nothing in our New Testament except First Timothy, we'd know enough about how to do church just based on this book. Well, that's the first takeaway. Understand, understand the blueprint. Here's the final one. Commit to following the blueprint. Commit to following it. This week, I'd love for you to find a little time where you could, you might read this book. It's, it's six chapters, but they're really short. You can get through it 10, 15 minutes. Maybe you don't like to read. Maybe you're more of a listen while you go on a jog or drive to work. ESV.org, you can listen to this thing for free. Listen to 1 Timothy sometime this week. And, and as you do, just even just once, try to read through this book or listen to it before next Sunday. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Before you do that, I want you to commit in your heart whatever it says I am going to follow. Because here's, here's what's going to happen. It's already happened to me. My guess is it's going to happen to you. There's going to be parts of 1 Timothy that don't feel very comfortable to us. There's going to be times that we come up against something in 1 Timothy and we go, mm -mm, wish that wasn't in there. Now, of course, that happens in all the Bibles. That's not just 1 Timothy specific. Like, like if, you, if you're reading any part of the Bible and you're sort of like, ooh, I didn't like that part. I'm like, right? <laughs> but, but the question then for you, especially as it pertains to 1 Timothy, is this. Will you try to shape 1 Timothy into what you want it to say? Or will you allow 1 Timothy to shape you based on what it says? I mean, that's the big question. And what I'd love for you to do right now is commit whatever you've actually said in 1 Timothy. Not just Jeremy's interpretation, not just Mill Creek's necessarily. I'm going to try to show you my work and how we derive these conclusions. But I want you to commit, man, I am going to allow this book to shape 
me. And when it pushes on something that is outside of the scope of, of what it tells me to do, I will bow the knee to what God's authoritative word says. I'm going to let it shape me. I'm not going to try to shape it. For isn't this exactly what happens with the gospel for us, friends? And this is exactly what the gospel has to do. I mean, my guess is all over churches today in the metro, in this nation, people are standing up and they're clearly communicating. The gospel message most simply is this, Christ died for your sins. And there are people who hear that message, who are understanding Christ died for their sins, but they don't like that message. They hate that message. In fact, some of you might be in here going, yeah, I hate the idea that I can't save myself. And so you try to shape the gospel message to make it something more palatable for you. Yeah, yeah, but if I really follow your rules, God, won't that probably save me too? Nope. No, we can't shape the gospel message. The only way to be saved is Jesus Christ. The saying is trustworthy. Christ came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, of which I am foremost. There is one way to be saved for eternity. Salvation is only under one name. His name is Jesus. Now there's times where in our pride and arrogance we try to shape that message and make it so that we can feel better. We try to ignore the blood. Oh, let the, let the world know. Make sure you know. Our gospel is all about the blood. The only way to be saved is through the blood. That's the only message that can save us. We don't shape the gospel. Let us not shape 1 Timothy. Hey, final thought. I think a thousand years from now, God willing, we're going to be in glory. And it would be fun to be able to catch a coffee with somebody who is a member of the Ephesian congregation. I'd love that. Say, hey, what was that like? And they say, uh, yeah, man. That letter from Paul, that was crazy. Because, because, come to find out, it wasn't very popular, but the gospel was the foundation of our church. And that's why Timothy would get up week in, week out. He'd just keep bringing us back to the gospel. Sometimes we thought it was a little boring. Sometimes we thought, why don't you spice it up a little bit? But, man, it was just Jesus Christ. That's what Timothy kept preaching. And God willing, a thousand years from now, Mill Creeker, you could go, us too. That's what we're about. Or, or, or if they said, oh, man, yeah, dude, church of... Church of God there in Ephesus, man, it was crazy because our leadership structure, we only allowed elders to be men. And boy, that was not popular 2,000 years ago in Ephesus. And you go, yeah, us too. <laughs> our culture didn't love that either. But I mean, we just try to do what the blueprint says. Or they say, man, uh, in our church, man, Paul told Timothy to give the rich people the business. And the rich people didn't love that. And, you know, rich people in a church, they, they can seem to have a lot of control. But, man, Timothy just... He just said what the text said. And God willing, we could say, us too. And, and, and while we are separated by all these years of culture and language and probably stood and sat at different times and had different access to God's word, God willing, 2,000 years difference isn't actually that much in glory. And we just, our church is really just like a cookie cutter church of, church of Ephesus. And God willing, there's churches all over this city God, we want to be able to plant churches. They don't have to do everything like us, but my hope is that they have the same blueprint for church that we have. It's God's blueprint. God willing, we follow that Mill Creek. Let's pray that he would do that. Would you pray with me?
Now, God, thanks for the chance to walk through this scripture. And I do pray that you would give us grace to understand. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.